The following podcast is part of a certified educational activity titled Building a Better Bridge, Providing Continuous SMA Care from Adolescents Through Adulthood. Access the entire activity and complete the post-test at peerview.com forward slash CRG 860. Downloadable slides and practice aids are also available. Hello, my name is Claudia Chiraboga. I'm a professor of neurology at Columbia University Medical Center. I wish to welcome you to this educational activity on spinal muscular atrophy and the transition from adolescent to adult care. Our goals for today is to have a clear understanding of the challenges faced by adolescents with SMA as they transition to adult care, more effectively implement the transition to adult care, and develop an individualized management plans that address the multifaceted needs of adults with SMA. So let's start with a bit of background. SMA that I am referring to is classic SMA or 5Q SMA, which accounts for 95% of genetic disorders causing SMA and is the target of the novel disease-modifying treatments. It's caused by mutations, by allelic, because it's autosomal recessive, uh, either deletions or mutations on the SMN1 gene, which is on chromosome 5. If you look at the cartoon on your upper right hand, you'll see that the SMN1 gene, exon 6, 7, and 8, um, and emphasize the C has to be included uh, to make a full-length SMN protein, which is vital for survival. The majority of uh, the SMN protein, the lion's share, is produced by the SMN1 gene. And so reduction in SMN protein is the cause of SMA, and it results in neurodegeneration because motor neurons, as the name of the gene uh, describes, survival motor neuron gene is exquisitely sensitive to deficiency of SMN protein. can affect other cells as the cartoon on the bottom shows including neuromuscular junction, muscles, proprioceptive neurons. It's a common autosomal recessive neuromuscular disorder, and the average carrier rate is about 1 in 50, but it can go from 1 in 28, depending on the populations, to as low as 1 in 65. And that was the rate pilot study here in New York, where I'm based. Now, it's a single gene, yet the phenotypic spectrum is very wide, as I'll talk about momentarily going from type 0 to type 4. And the reason for this is the SMN2 gene, which is only contained in humans, and that produces mostly a truncated non-functional SMN protein, which, if you recall, the cartoon above on the SMN1 gene, it's missing exon 7. However, there's a small proportion, maybe 10-15% of that SMN2 gene that through alternative splices includes that exon 7 and produces a bit of SMN protein. That is why the SMN2 gene is considered a disease modifier because being higher the SMN2 gene copy number, which varies from 1 to 6, um, the milder the phenotype. And we'll see that association with regards to the clinical classification of SMA and the manner in which it presents. So type 0, which in Europe I think they define as type 1A, um, is prenatal in onset, has mostly one SMN2 copy, and these are babies who are born with very advanced SMA, oftentimes not moving, not swallowing, not breathing, will need support to survive. Without it, they will succumb to their disease in early infancy. Type 1, uh, which is the old word in Hoffman, presents between 2 and 6 months of age, usually 2 SMN2 copy numbers, and by definition, the ultimate motor function described in these children is that they're never able to sit and usually die without any intervention within two years of life. Obviously, 
uh, the respiratory issues, the swallowing issues can be treated, and with treatment, things will change. The SMA type 2 presents between 6 months and 18 months, typically has three copy numbers, and by definition, these uh, children um, sit at some point, always delayed, but never walk independently. And their survival, they can reach adulthood, um, but it will be in shortened lifespan without disease-modifying treatment. Type 3 SMA presents after 18 months and under 18 years of age. SMN2 copy is between 3 and 4, and we're defined by the ability to walk independently at some point in time, and they reach adulthood and usually lifespan is not impaired. Um, I must note that there are two grades, and it makes a difference in terms of their clinical course. Um, type 3A are those individuals who present under age 3, and they have a much more rapid progression about 40% of them are not emulating within 20 years, whereas presenting after age 3, about 90% of patients uh, with 3A, uh, 3B later onset are ambulatory 20 years into their disease. And um, type 4, which is the adult onset, usually has four copy numbers. Um, they present much later, and it's minimally progressive. Differential diagnosis is bubble motor neuron disorder, such as ALS, and <clears throat> uh, survival is not affected. Obviously, this is based on ultimate function level without treatment, and it has changed with uh, disease-modifying therapy. And it has changed because now we treat pre-symptomatically, so we treat based on genetic burden and not based on symptoms. So these phenotypes, as they progress into adulthood, um, have certain manifestations that are seen in pediatric ages, but they become more severe. For instance, type 1 patients who are symptomatic, um, when they, if they survive to adulthood, um, they will be very severe and have quadriplegia and facial and bulbar weakness, not have a lot of distal movements and have reflexia. Similarly, type 2 patients um, who already in childhood have very extremely weak legs with contractures, it progresses to the arms and then can affect breathing, swallowing, uh, and those um, uh, systems need to be monitor, and uh, they can also, they all have scoliosis of some degree, and by the time they reach adulthood, most of them already had spinal fusion. Um, when they talk about sitters, um, those are mostly stronger type 2s and some 3As that have lost ambulation, and uh, they will have Oftentimes, respiratory issues requiring perhaps non-invasive ventilation and uh, will develop scoliosis. Um, the twos in the childhood age, the three age probably as well. Finally, the walkers, um, the patients who reach adulthood and are ambulatory will have weakness, legs greater than arms, proximal greater than distal, and all of our patients have reflexia. Um, typically, the upper body is spared and respiratory system is spared as well, so you don't have facial ball wall weakness or impaired respiratory function. What is the prevalence of SMA? Well, globally, it's about estimated to be one in two individuals per 100,000, and the average incidence rate is about one in 10,000, but it varies. Um, for instance, Germany has about one in 7,500, by live births, New York has about one in 22,000, and that's not all uh, racially um, derived, but the rates are much lower. Um, the most common form of SMA is um, SMA type 1. Um, 
which accounts for 60% of cases with the increased survival in treatment. We're starting to see more of those early type 1 patients um, survive, so they're becoming more um, more prevalent because the prevalence includes mostly SMA type 2s, um, the older the population is. So the mildest and rarest type of SMA is SMA type 4, the adult onset one, with a prevalence of 1 in 300,000, represents about less than 1% of all SMA cases, and again, needs to be distinguished from other motor neuropathies such as OLS. With the advent of disease-modifying therapy, the natural history of SMA has been altered in a positive way. Infants with SMA type 1 are surviving into later ages and are beginning to be able to sit and when they're treated early, some even are walking. Older patients with more advanced disease uh, experience stabilization and some have some return of function, uh, but the expectation would be uh, if, for example, you have a type 2 and been in a wheelchair all your life, that treatment is not going to allow you to stand up and walk. But improvements will occur in the upper body, respiratory and bulbar function, which are very important as well. Um, and oftentimes the focus should be on changes in the upper body. Um, and no doubt that there will be more and more SMA patients reaching the adult world um, as they graduate from the pediatric world. So how do we manage SMA? As with most neuromuscular disorders, uh, patients benefit from a multidisciplinary approach. And you can see the uh, spoken wheel diagram has the most important um, systems to address with the patient and the family in the center. Uh, and they're all very important. Um, this holistic approach addresses many organ systems and a single visit affords the opportunity of seeing several providers. Given the mobility issues, this is, this is very helpful to our patients. Not every site can have all the providers that are needed to see the patient at the same time. Um, it depends. Some, some have more support, institutional support than others, but there should be at least a core team that can oversee all of these organ systems and make referrals if that provider is not within the core team. Um, for instance, there are specialists who are identified as champions, meaning they have uh, expertise and interest to manage patients with SMA. Trigger more patients are referred, and that goes within everything. If it's orthopedics, if it's um, endocrine, whoever, um, whatever the specialty may be. Now, we follow SMA consensus guidelines. Um, but these are devised primarily for pediatrics. There was the first SMA consensus in 2007, and more recently, um, the guidelines were updated in 2018 to take results of clinical trials into account. And you can see um, many of these items have to do with early diagnosis and genetics, so counseling for new diagnosis, but the rest are common to um, existing patients. And the novelty is the use of medication. So the before 2016, December of 2016, when the first disease-modifying therapy was approved, the interventions available for SMA were largely supportive care. And they made a difference. There was a change with the use of uh, non-invasive ventilation um, as well as routine gastrostomy tubes when there was dysphagia that enhanced survival um, significantly. There is overlap of the goals of adult SMA care with pediatric care, but there are significant differences. 
The primary one being autonomy. Our adult patients are expected to be self-reliant, advocating for themselves, negotiating the system, um, and the target discussions are different uh, because of the transition to college, the workforce, um, and there will be disease-specific progression as well. There's talk of treatment, optimum treatment, whether uh, it's continuation of what they have been on or changes if new treatment come on the, to the horizon. The comorbidities can be a bit different. Uh, there'll be some physical comorbidities that we'll talk about that may be more prevalent in the adult SMA group, and then psychological uh, related to transitions. The focus is on the psychosocial well-being and the quality of life, uh, especially um, promoting independence and activities of daily living and negotiating work and school, college, and importantly, that it's not big of an issue in the adolescent group or the social relationships. There are practical or financial barriers when um, patients are in adult care, including transportation, time away from work, Mobility that is essential, without which they cannot oftentimes leave their home. And then just learning how to navigate the health system. So the practical or financial barriers that I spoke about are important to address early on because they contribute to patient disengagement and just throwing up their hands saying, I am not going to deal with this. College considerations include Campus accessibility. Will there be assistance for non-ambulatory patients? What are the accommodations available for them? There always is need for social work assistance, for accessible housing, durable medical equipment, or letters of medical necessity. What well, surprises me that you need a letter of medical necessity to replace a battery in a power wheelchair when it is non-functional. Makes no sense, but you must do this. And then there are psychosocial challenges related to anxiety during transition. And this can be at the start of college. More frequently, I've seen it with regards to from college to the workforce where the individual becomes more independent and has work and more social interactions. It's important to individualize goals of treatment. One size does not fit all because patients are at different stages of disease severity. For instance, respiratory and bulbar function was very important to monitor in weak non-ambulatory patients, type 2s and 3As, but not in patients uh, who are ambulatory uh, because they will have no dysphagia or dysarthria. Patients who are non-ambulatory can eventually develop um, weakness in arms, and with time it can affect the hands. Usually it starts proximal, but with time you can develop contractures in the hands and weakness and so it's important to try to maximize these abilities because sometimes it makes the difference between the ability to use the joystick and have independence of mobility or the ability to type in order to maintain a job or to attend college. And an important issue that invariably happens over time with decreased mobility is excess weight gain. And the point I wanted to make here is that the weight norms for healthy adults do not apply to patients with SMA because over time they do lose lean body mass or what's called also fat-free mass and have an increase of free fat um, so that, for instance, a BMI of 3%, and these are pediatrics and only worsens in the adult uh, group, uh, corresponds to about 50% fat. So the optimal weight is usually on the lower end of the scale. So less than 20 percentile, 10 or 5 percentile 
should be fine because weight uh, gained is mostly going to be fat, and that hinders mobility and health overall. Clinical issues that may be more prevalent in adults with SMA. Fatigue is always very prevalent. More prevalent in ambulatory patients. Kidney stones over time do develop and may be more prevalent with certain types of treatment, though that hasn't been confirmed. Osteoporosis inevitably worsens. Uh, may be present earlier, uh, but will worsen because of decreased mobility. There can be acidosis, hypertension. We talked about weight management. And then the sexual and reproductive health and hormonal issues. So with the osteoporosis and the question of hormonal issues, referral to an endocrinologist may be needed to, to assist patients with, uh, with these issues. So how do we transition SMA care from pediatric to adult providers? It is not easy, and resources vary different centers, but ideally it's important to start preparing adolescents for transition to adult care early. Some recommendations are to start before 14. Uh, at least by 16, they should start this discussion, and that is to address the clinical, psychosocial, as well um, as the medical uh, in a perfect world, there would be a transition clinic where the pediatric and the adult provider would meet uh, and that would get to know the patient. But there are some difficulties in this regard because oftentimes it's not easy to identify adult providers experienced in SMA who would have the resources needed to provide treatment that often requires uh, formal PT evaluations in order to um, obtain authorization for these disease-modifying treatments. And by engaging the patient early, having them be proactive about their care and start to discuss plans and goals of care every year um, so that they are prepared. Oftentimes when this is absent, they reach the adult world and feel lost and then stop going or come back to us until we feel that they're ready to to try again um but the more uh the more um experience they have with the transition the smoother it will go and of course it's important to school for psychosocial concerns so we list here some of the challenges um, some I've already spoken about, uh, the adults especially wear financial assistance for equipment because it's not oftentimes covered by insurances. Um, they feel undervalued by the healthcare system. Some providers don't um, view them as individuals or feel that because their disorders are so advanced, there's not much to do when we talked about small gains or can be very important for their quality of life. And that they, depending on the system in which the healthcare system state in which they are, they may have to rely more on families and friends for supporting posing for, for um, just transitions and as an attendant. And mental health service access is a problem for everyone, especially since COVID, but especially for the adult world. Let's focus now on individualizing pharmacological management for adult patients with SMA. SMA has a history starting in 1967 when the traditional types of SMA were classified, that's one, two, and three. The survival motor neuron gene was discovered in 1995. And we dosed at Columbia the first patient um, with uh, what later turned out to be called 
Nusenersen, December of 2011, and by 2016, it had been approved for use of SMA in all ages and types. In 2019 was the approval of the gene replacement therapy on Asenogen apoparavic XIOI, but that applies to children less than two years of age. In 2020, the FDA approved the use of Ristaplan for SMA patients greater than two months, and subsequently it has been approved for SMA patients of all ages. But adults, treatments only include mucinersin and Ristaplan. Both mRNA-based therapies, Ristaplan and mucinersin, act in a similar region of the SMN2 gene on exon 7, for Ristaplan and on intron 7, both Ristaplan and Nusinersen act um, to promote the inclusion of exon 7, so producing more functional SMN protein than is naturally produced and decreasing the amount of delta 7, which is the non-functional protein that the SMN2 gene produces. So let's go specifically to a case in point. And let's take Maria, for example. She is now 14 years of age. She was diagnosed at age four with SMA type three when she began to fall and had trouble climbing stairs. Mind you, it's well described that there's a delay in diagnosis of SMA, especially with the SMA type three. She started disease-modifying therapy at age seven years, which is when um, the first disease-modifying therapy became available, which would be Nusenersen. And she was taking that um, since. She felt she had benefited some from it and was happy with the treatment. And she was attending the multidisciplinary SMA clinic. So the question is, I get asked this a lot, is there any reason to switch medications? Was one better than another? And clearly, there are no head-to-head comparisons between Nusenersen and Wistaplan. Uh, so from our jewelfish study that I'll talk to you later about, um, there are many reasons patients may wish to change. Uh, and we'll talk about them in the next section. But if a medication is felt to be working and they're happy with the way things are going, there's no reason to change just for the sake of changing. So in her case, she felt that her gait had not advanced, that she was doing pretty well, um, and the procedure itself was not very problematic. However, by this time, um, she was starting to get some scoliosis and was concerned about administration of the medication. So let's talk about Lucinersen. This is an antisensolibal nucleotide, and it targets a specific site. We showed you that to produce more functional SMN protein. It's administered intrathecally, and its loading dose, which is day 1, 15, or 14, 30, and 60, and then followed by a maintenance phase of 12 milligrams every four months. And it has some side effects, but relatively mild. It's relatively inert intrathecally, but it can result in thermal cytopenia, renal toxicity, most of the side effects relate to the spinal tap itself. And the infant study in deer showed efficacy in infants. And the CHERISH trial also showed in, uh, efficacy in children between, supposed to be late onset SMA, but, and up to 12 years of age, but the oldest patient was nine years of age. And it showed improvement um, in the Hammersmith score. There are no pivotal controlled clinical trials with Nusenersen. 
the studies that I will show are prospective or retrospective cohort studies just showing the evolution with time with treatment. And this is uh, Hagenecker in, in Germany, who um, has a large cohort, 173 patients. I call your attention to the table showing the change in baseline Hammersmith scores, the proportion of the greater than three-point change on the Hammersmith, which is clinically significant. And by 14 months, leave the clinically meaningful. About 40% had a greater than three-point increase in the Hammersmith. And for the ambulatory patients, the focus is on the six-minute walk test, and there had been an improvement of about 46 meters. Well, with pediatric worlds, well, the time we found maybe a 30 meter per year improvement um, in the field on ambulatory patients that were included in the open animal study. Also in Europe, 162 patients has the largest number of SMA type 3 patients. And as you can see, there are many responders. This is a study by Maggie, um, also from Germany, um, has 18 to 72 years of age with SMA, 2 and 3. And as you can see over time, there are a substantial number of responders over time. Now, the only caveat that I would say is that Many of these patients are more functional and that um, you see a better response in patients who are early in the progress of the disease, not so much their age, but the severity and the duration of their disease. So it may not be as robust in patients who are at the tail end in the plateau phase of the disease. Where's the plan? showed you where it works and its function, and it is indicated for patients of all ages in the U.S. It's liquid. It's administered once daily by mouth or G2, and it has the distinction of being more systemic, meaning reaching muscles, neuromuscular junction, and other organ systems, whereas mucinersin is targeted in the spine and very little of it is systemic and out of the system within 24 hours or so. The most common side effects of clamp are fever, diarrhea, and rematch. The pediatric or infant studies firefish that showed improvement um, in efficacy in two to seven months and prevented progression of the respiratory and uh, dysphagia that's typically seen with SMA type 1. Now, the pivotal placebo-controlled trial is called Sunfish, and it has two parts. One is part one, which is exploratory to identify dose. Um, this study is distinguished because it includes adults. It's the only one that does. And individuals are from two years of age to 25 years of age. Now, part two is the placebo control, and the outcome is the MSM. 32, more prevalent in Europe and more sensitive to change when we have more advanced disease than the Hammersmith, but they also looked at other measures um, that are listed here, or Rome, which is for the upper body, the Hammersmith, which is more for gross function, uh, and then some uh, independent scales um, deciding that, and you uh, the response. Here's the breakdown of the group. We can see that there's about a quarter of patients who are adolescents and wants a tricking age because there's typically a decline in performance during adolescence. Well, and theorized to be due to a greater need for SMN protein during developmental changes. And then in the adult proffer, well, 13 or 12 percent. And Call your attention to the last on the bottom right. And this has changed from baseline on the NFM. And as you can see in the red, there was a decline. And then by the end of the study, there was a 1.5 change 
on the MFM score. I did want to speak a bit about Jewelfish, um, which is an open-label study, but it was to assess how patients who decided they wished to change treatment, either from uh, gene transfer therapy or from Samirsin and started um, Rizipline. So it's a very broad population going from six months, some of the babies with um, gene transfer therapy, up to one of the oldest patients, old mine, who is 60. Um, and you can see on the bottom um, how heterogeneous the population is, or Hammersmith. The, heterogene the heterogeneity of the population is evident in the listing on the bottom left. They're weaker with a Hammersmith score less than 10. On SMA type, 62% of a type 2. And scoliosis, which was excluded in the cherishing Singerson study, uh, was prevalent when the uh, majority of patients and about 78% it was uh, severe, which is more than 40. So weaker patients. So the expectations for treatment are going to be different in a weaker population. And what you would expect is stabilization. You keep what you have. And here you can see over the course of the two years that there was stability on the MFM compared to the natural history, which declines on the MFM over that time period to by 2.66 so absence of progression is a response and should not be fallen on responders. And you can see that there's a bit of improvement on the revised upper lens module, which is where you would anticipate that there would be improvement if you were to see it, and that means um, always good to see. And the Hammersmith, um, which is impacted by contractures, was all the patients have because they've been sitting in a wheelchair for most of their lives, you'll see less ability for change. So what is on the horizon for patients, um, adult patients with SMA? So there are several studies ongoing. Uh, the myostatin antibody uh, as an adjunct for disease-modifying therapy um, there are higher doses of mucinersin, and then there are phase four trials of risteplem and mucinersin, which um, are for follow-up and for safety as well. So here lists the three studies. Manatee is not initially for, part one is not for uh, the pediatric group, but part two that hasn't started yet is for ambulant patients from two to 25 years of age. And uh, that has uh, not yet been open, but we'll be recruiting next year, hopefully. Resilient, which uses manatee is administered. It's an immunoglobulin, and it's administered subcutaneously once a month. Resilient, which is a subcutaneous uh, immunoglobulin, taldefgrobmib, um, is administered weekly. And that is from 4 to 21. Our enrollment has been completed. And Sapphire has also enrollment completed. And what is um, 2 to 21 years of age, either 2 or 3 type. Um, the high dose mucinersin um, includes a loading dose um, of a higher dose and only two loading doses. Um, and it is um, not recruiting anymore. And then Ascend is the newer one, and that's for non-naive patients. These are patients who have previously been treated with with Ristoplan uh, and wish to transition, and it's been changed more to 15 to 50 years of age. And the focus is the revised after limb module, and they are the recruiting. And then there are... Some studies, likewise, looking at changes on performance um, over time, not yet recruiting. And then there's some 
more um, registry form like the WSMA, which is um, recruitment to all ages, and then RESPOND, which is all ages previously treated with one gene, looking at the response for moose and nursing, paving the way to comprehensive, multidisciplinary, transitional SMA care is the focus of this next section. So it's important to have a personalized planning and ongoing skill development is important um, during that period of transition so that they embrace the emotional, logistic, and self-advocacy skills that are needed in the job fund, which would mean promoting quality of life with functional independence, autonomy so that they participate in education, employment, and personal relationships. One of the first things that are started is for adolescents to take the reins of volume, scheduling their appointments, calling the doctor when they have issues, um, knowing how to proceed if there's an acute event, uh, so that they start thinking about self-management instead of relying on their parents. Practical issues at this time uh, might involve for independence, it's going to be, one will be mobility, um, because oftentimes when they're off to college, there'll be ambulatory patients will need to cover more ground, so they will tire, so starting discussion of a scooter, power wheelchair, whatever they felt best, uh, but that's best to start early. Um, you want um, a college student to spend their energy in learning and not trying to get from point A to point B. While not always easy to obtain on the, uh, the approval and um, the college has to be stipulated as their new place of residence because oftentimes that can be a problem for the insurances. Finding smart housing or developing smart housing, there are certain rehabilitation centers. We have one in New York where the referral is so that the patient's um, house is looked at, or apartment, or home, to determine how best to make it user-friendly and make it smart so that their modal limitations do not prevent them from carrying out some activities of daily living that would be within their reach with certain accommodations. So let's go back to Maria, a young lady at age 14 who had been on nursing since age seven, and we start the conversation to transfer to the adult SMA clinic. So the discussions all have to do with their plans for the future, and she plans to attend an out-of-state college. Um, her autonomy is the ability for her to be responsible for her medical decisions. And one of the first decisions she wishes to make is to not undergo invasive treatment. She does not want the LPs. Um, so there's a discussion about switching therapies. The other thing is the fatigue on ambulation uh, that will require discussion about mobility, accessories, um, that in addition to not wanting invasive treatment, she doesn't have the ability to travel every four months for treatment at home while at college. And then identifying the resources in the college, and there are some universities who have better programs for um, and better services for students with disabilities. Well, it's important to aid the parent in um, on searching for those. There are also state programs that we should be researching as well, as oftentimes 
there are state um, programs that will give either college students or some assistance for students with disabilities. Both the 504 accommodations by law um, need to be moved forward if it's an issue of your time to tie for to prepare. Um, and another one is the foreign insurance changes and the impact on medication coverage during the transition. Recently, um, I was involved in a young man. Actually, he was the first patient I dosed in December of 2011 uh, with Lisa and who was off to college. And uh, it was not known to me that he had, he was going to Michigan, University of Michigan, and um, had applied for Medicaid. Then he was on always the one. Um, and the problem is that I cannot prescribe home on Michigan, and it's a process to start treatment. Um, so that needs to be spoken about in advance um, so that steps can be taken to prevent that from happening. Luckily, we were able to have the mother's insurance carry over uh, for a few months until he can be evaluated and started on treatment. So we talked about periodic assessments, education, skill building, collaboration, and um, more independence in terms of caring for their own or um, medical or appointments, supportive and pharmacological intervention, uh, and then things that need to be considered, which includes scoliosis developing. Do they need to be assessed for that? Um, patient preference regarding mode of delivery, other treatment organs, and how best to transition healthcare. And sometimes if the right place is not found, oftentimes um, we continue treating a little bit, but we do need to transition them as, as soon as we can find the white scent. I'm not going to belabor this point, but there are questions that can assess transition readiness, and there are certain groups. The self-management is very important, and there's medical it has to do with everything related to your equipment, your medication, your appointments of that note, supplements, um, who to call uh, for medical equipment dysfunction. And there's financial. They do need to know how to manage money and expenses, including how to go about procuring their treatments, how is that paid, how much they need to cover, uh, and to ensure that they have insurance. And then there's self-advocacy, which is talking to the doctors, having them answer questions, and make sure that they are keeping tabs for themselves and applying for services and seeking out jobs and work with vocational services um, and um, here the social worker may be helpful in terms of guiding patients in this regard as to what services may be available to them to maximize um, either their treatment, their physical therapy, their medical equipment, their place of uh, living, etc. So meet maps. Max is a 15-year-old boy, adolescent boy, with SMA type 2. So just to recall what the disease would look like at 15, will be weak, will be contractured in his lens with no mobility, contractures in his hips, will have scoliosis and uh, likely have rods, will be weak in his arms with some mobility, maybe even some anti-gravity on the biceps, but not being shoulder-driven. Um, and may have 
other issues related to WASP report. So MAPS needs assistance with transfers and for most activities of daily living, meaning grooming, eating, transitioning. He has no chewing or swallowing problems, but he is fragile medically. Requires frequent visits with specialists, has frequent pneumonia, he has uh, some nocturnal hypoventilation, he needs uh, BiPAP support. At school during the day, he has a full time aide, and he wishes to go to college far from home. So, what are the challenges he will face with campus life, and um, what will he need to do? What will Max need to face challenges of campus life? So obviously, he'll need the support of an attendant. Unlike Maria, he needs frequent medical visits. Needs to know what to do if there's an acute event. So financial assistance with covering an attendant or other services. His doors would need accommodations. We would need phone and night to assist him with moving um, um, because staying in the same position will lead to um, decubita. So there's a much higher level of burden uh, for Max, which may or may not be feasible based on the ability to obtain those um, resources. If he can identify someone who assists on um, a provider in the college and the university hospital that he can attend, someone to provide his medication, um, and a network who can assist if he needs acute care, then he should be able to or to achieve his goal of attending an out-of-state college. He may not feel secure enough to do that, and then we worry if something doesn't work out, how will he manage without having family members close um, to assist? Again, that's where the services provided by the university are very important. While uh, some actually offer students a PT and other students to help uh, patients um, to, so that they can learn as well and provide that service for patients. So I think we covered most of the items that we consider with transition, the skill building, in collaboration with the adult provider, a multidisciplinary provider to continue disease-modifying treatment um, that has the resources and experience in order to proceed because um, there are some requirements in terms of um, physical therapy assessments and down um, authorization issues. Changes on disease-modifying therapy based on circumstances. Oftentimes it's that they don't like the invasiveness of perhaps nursing. Other times it's because it's difficult to, to perform or you need um, philosophy and radiation each time um, and looking at what's attractive. Well, then it's very painful because you need a foraminal um, injection instead. And then the personalized planning, which is the future goals, the resources, the fostering of self-advocacy, mobility issues at work at college, and importantly, identifying psychosocial stressors. And anything that's new or uncertain can be anxiety-provoking, and that is transitioning to college, transitioning to adult life. In the pediatric world, it's mostly surgeries, and that kind of trauma. And then, of course, identify emergency care plan, who to call, where to go, how is this managed if, if they're local or if they're 
LeBron, depending on how much family resources they have locally and uh, who has been identified. And that plan has to be implemented at the time of that they are prior to attending college. And why is this important to assist with the transitioning so that the patient is prepared? Um, so many, as I noted, many of my patients have felt lost when they have just started to go to new provider about a lot of prior um, discussion, and they oftentimes feel lost. Um, and it's important to prepare them. They've been used to seeing the same provider for years, and it's like family. You've seen them grow up and go through all the stages. And when they fall into an adult world where it's a little long person, and it's obviously a lot less hand-holding, and, and they need to know what to expect. And also, they might not know how the medical system works, won't be people making appointments for them. So they need to advocate for their needs, establish the rapport, and then they feel like lack of value or care, um, and they feel not seen. Well, it underscores the importance of the proactive approach to transition with care. So to improve care for adults with SMA, there are aspirational systems and structures, which in the ideal world we would all do, um, which is provide age-appropriate, comprehensive care that delivers the most meaningful health outcomes and quality of life. And the latter is very important. Um, establish more integrated pathways that enable adults living with FMA to optimally manage their multifaceted healthcare needs. And as you can see from the spoken wheel, there are many issues um, that expand on with adult medical issues um, over time. And then, of course, it's important to strengthen the social and financial support system. The full goal is the empowerment of adults living with SMA and their caregivers to fulfill their personal goals as much as is possible. So the conclusion and take-home messages. I never thought that I would see this much change in SMA on treatment in my lifetime, and I have been so blessed to be a part of this so that the severe disease and shortened lifespan that was customary is no longer the case that patients with disease-modifying treatments are surviving into adulthood, not only surviving, but thriving, so that more adult patients will be reaching the adult SMA providers. With continuing research, such as combination studies with disease-modifying treatments, other agents, higher doses of therapies, that will we expect to see improvement in the survival and function of adult SMA patients. No doubt, adults have different medical, emotional, social, and logistic needs than infants and children who have historically been the center of SMA care and attention. And I think it's time that we start focusing on the adult needs. Their lack of comprehensive support is provided uh, to children makes the transition from adolescent to adulthood challenging or not transition. And adult SMA care should have the goal of fostering autonomy. Always the patient was involved in the shared decision-making. The main difference is that the adult is now the one making the decisions instead of the family. Uh, that they're always considered and their needs are taken into account. And the consideration has to be with individual needs, aspirations, and preferences, while 
what plans for education, employment, personal relationship, sexuality, reproduction, and family planning. All of those things that are not well focusing pediatric SMA, but that um, we aspire to improve autonomy. So the goal is to um, provide the adult SMA patient with the autonomy, the decision-making, and the control of their uh, care, where as providers we, pro- we give the needed information for these decisions to be made, but ultimately it's a shared decision um, and never an autocratic um, externally directed one decision. Well, thank you for joining me in this educational activity. I hope you find it useful in your practice. This activity is certified by PVI, Peerview Institute for Medical Education. Remember to download the slides and practice aids. Thank you for listening. Download materials and complete the post-test for instant credit at peerview.com forward slash CRG 860. This activity is supported by an educational grant from Genentech, a member of the Roche Group.